0: You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenchurch.com. So well, I know we've heard it and we've said it and it's been said already today, but I just personally wanted to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And and I know that, you know, I, I, my prayer was that everyone's hearts and homes were filled with joy and laughter and so much peace yesterday. But, but I also know the reality of it is that that probably wasn't everybody's story, and so I just want to encourage you today that whether whether you felt those things in your own home, you're going to feel those things in the house of God today. You're going to be ministered to, you're going to be filled with joy, and you're just going to feel God's presence and His love, so I'm so excited for that. And I'm also excited that it's Shredder Sunday! Yay! You guys, this is a big deal. So, as you know, I'm I'm ministering. Just whatever you feel to write down on that piece of paper, please do. And at the end of the service, we're going to physically be shredding those things. Now, I need you to understand something: these aren't supernatural shredders. Yeah. Yeah. However, supernatural things happen on Shredder Sunday. Because we actually partner with God and the hope that we have, we attach to our faith as we shred those things that God actually is going to do the impossible in our lives. So when we, we shred those things full of faith and hope, God actually moves and he responds to our faith. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a shredder Sunday before, but they, big things can happen today. Like big things. Like in years past, we had someone, one of my girlfriends had an $80,000 medical bill that was completely taken care of after she shredded it. Yeah. Wait, I think there needs to be more of an applause on that situation. There was a friend of mine, a $50,000 unexpected tax bill and that tax will end up turning up completely gone and then they got a return. Like miracles happen. Amazing things happen. So we're going to shred the medical bills. We're going to shred the reports. We're going to shred things. We're going to shred unhealthy mindsets. But I want to go a little bit deeper today and shred things that won't just change our current circumstances, but have the opportunity and the ability to change the course of our life. And I'm not talking silly. I'm serious. This message today has the ability to change the course of your life and in your walk with God. And so I'm so happy to share. And and we're gonna be, I'm gonna be doing a little bit of storytelling. I'm not gonna be telling fairy tales. I'm gonna be speaking out of, of stories in the Bible. And I'm gonna kind of have to do the reader's digest version because I'm gonna be going over several books of the Bible in a very short amount of time. So the team knows not to be trying to follow me with scriptures. So I I really want, I don't want you like looking at me, listening, then looking up there, and then you get lost in the story. No, track with me. I want you to listen to this story. So, we're going to be picking up in the book of Exodus. So, we're going to be talking about how the Israelites, and actually, I just want to put the title of my message up now. So, my message is titled Signature. So, the Israelites had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. They were tormented, they were mistreated, they were abused. It was a wicked, wicked, wicked Pharaoh that kept them in slavery and in bondage. And he said like he, would, he was such an evil taskmaster that he would actually give them tasks to do that he knew himself was physically impossible. Then he would beat them and even kill them if they couldn't complete the task that he knew was impossible. Like it's horrible circumstances for 400 years. And so at the end of Exodus chapter 2, the Israelites groan and cry out to God, the Bible says. And the Bible says that they, their cry came up to God. And he responded. The next two verses, the very next two verses, God already puts a rescue plan in motion, and and He uh, sends an angel to Moses in the midst of a burning bush, and the Lord speaks to Moses through this burning bush, this fire. And, and, and the Lord tells Moses that he has seen the oppression of his people, that he has heard their cry, and he knows their sorrows, the Bible says. And he has come to deliver them. It's amazing. But then the Lord tells Moses that he actually wants to do it through him. And he's like, wow, whoa, whoa, the great I am. Let me, let me have a, a moment here. Is there not anyone else? Like, can, can we use someone else in this situation? Like, I don't speak very well. Like, are you sure I have to do this? And, you know, he's negotiating with God. And, and, and so finally Moses agrees to allow to be used by God to deliver the Israelites on the condition that he was allowed to have his brother Aaron come along with him. Because apparently Aaron can speak better than Moses. So, so Moses agreed under those conditions. So God reluctantly um, agreed to those terms. And then the rescue mission continues. And so we know that Moses and Aaron went to the wicked Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. God says to let his people go. And if you know the story, we know that the evil wicked Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So God sets in motion 10 plagues to fall upon Egypt to help try to convince Pharaoh that he needs to let God's people go. The first plague was where he turned all the water to blood no drinkable water like even in their water or their basins it says it turned to blood like it was completely undrinkable that was the first thing the second plague was frogs and i need you to understand here these aren't just like kermit you know cute little frogs here there like it's talking about frogs everywhere in their mixing bowls their kneading bowls on their kitchen tables in their beds they are hopping all over them like you cannot step without stepping on a frog gross All right? And so that was the second plague. And then we go on and then there's lice covering everybody. Then there's flies. And then God kills all the livestock of the Egyptians. Still, Pharaoh won't comply. Then he sends boils on all the Egyptians, They're in pain and then they're suffering and he still doesn't comply. And then he sends down hail, like massive, I mean, like snowball hail where it says anyone in its path, any living person or creature or plant or tree, all was completely destroyed by the magnitude of this hail. Still, he wouldn't let God's people go. Then there was locusts. Then there was darkness for three days. Can you imagine not seeing your hand in front of your face for three days, just being in pitch and utter darkness? Still, Pharaoh would not let God's people go. And so the final plague that changes Pharaoh's mind was that God said that every firstborn of every Egyptian family will die at midnight. And so there, it says there was great weeping in all of Egypt on that night. And it said not, no household was left untouched by the destruction of that plague. Even Pharaoh... Lost his firstborn. So finally, Pharaoh gets to the place where he just wants, now he just wants them out. Like, get out of here. Yes, take your people, go. And so Moses gathers the two million Israelites. So this is not like this kind of congregation. We're talking about a congregation of over two million people. Have you seen two million people? That's a lot of people. I, I've never physically seen two, pe- me, two million people with my own eyes. Like, it's inconceivable to me. He gathers them all up, and they all start exiting out of their slavery and their bondage. So he takes the Israelites out of Egypt. And the Bible says that God led them through the way of the Red Sea. And so, so as soon as they're, you know, they're on their way, they're, they're traveling towards the Red Sea. And in that very moment, Pharaoh, like, Pharaoh realizes, like, wait a second. What did I just do? I've had free labor 2 million people for over 400 years. Who's going to get all this work done? And he's like, "Oh, no. Go get them. Go get them." So he wind, he rounds up all all the Egyptian army. It says that he selects his 600 like just incredibly strong chariots, and the finest horsemen, and the finest officers, and all the army, and they set out to bring back the Israelites back into bondage. So we find the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea. Can you imagine God has did 10 plagues, and all of a sudden you're like, and then he leads you to a place that now, now where? Now what? Seriously. Impossibility in front of you. And then they hear the roar of the chariots and the horses and the, and the army coming behind them, which also is impossible. The greatest military army coming after them. And the distance is closing in. So you can imagine the fear and trembling that the Israelites may be feeling in this moment. And the Bible says that they cried out to Moses and the Lord because they were afraid. And this is what the Israelites said. Why have you taken us to die in the wilderness? Why did you take us out of bondage? Leave us alone. We would rather be slaves than die. And then the Lord responds through Moses saying, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today shall be no more. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. So as the word of the Lord was spoken, Moses stretches his hand over over the Red Sea and the waters begin to part. Can you imagine? Just try. Try to imagine what it would look like for a sea With the walls of water coming up on either side where you could see the dry or the ground. And then God sends a rushing mighty wind to dry the ground so that the Israelites, the entire entire company of Israelites, two million people, can cross over through a sea on dry land. The Egyptians pursued him through the sea. But the Bible says the moment the last Israelites stepped onto the other side of the sea, that the Lord caused the walls of water to come crashing back down over the entire Egyptian army, wiping out every single one, just as the Lord had promised. Just as he had promised. And you can imagine how we find ourselves in Exodus 6 or Exodus 15. And they're all singing and praising and jumping and got out their tambourines. And I can only imagine what would be taking place. They're singing about the goodness, the faithfulness, the strength, the power, the glory of the Lord. And they're having a huge moment of victory. Declaring God's faithfulness and goodness. And then they continued on on this Exodus, this journey. And it wasn't but three days that at the first sign of hardship, they began to question and complain against the Lord again. They had gone three days without any water. And instead of remembering God's faithfulness in the past, they complained, it says, have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? And they had come upon waters at Marah. And it says the waters, While well, they're like, oh, here's our water. And then they realized the water is bitter and undrinkable. And so the Israelites complained again against Moses and God saying they brought them out here to die in the wilderness. And while the Israelites complained, Moses prayed. And he cried out to God. And, Mo- and God showed Moses the tree planted by the waters at Marah. And he told Moses, dip the tree into the waters, and it'll make the water sweet and drinkable. And so that's exactly what he did. And so the, so the Israelites praised God again, When he showed himself faithful on their behalf. And then wouldn't you know it. In less than a day's journey. The Israelites came upon another land. Where there was 70 palm trees to provide shade. And there just so happened to be 12 water. Wells of water. And there just so happened to be 12 tribes in Israel. God had planned to provide for them a well for each and every tribe. Yet they were complaining less than a day's journey behind that God was not faithful to them. And so we find ourselves again in this pattern, and this continued on with the journey. They would sing praises and victory and and thank God for his goodness and faithfulness when he would come through, but every time they met any amount of hardship, their initial heart response was to complain and to have unbelief in their hearts. No matter how many times God had showed himself faithful, they still had unbelief. And a spirit of unbelief will never see beyond the difficulties Unbelief will never see beyond the difficulties. And so we realize they're an unbelieving generation. And now God brings them to the very border of the promised land. The very border that we've been talking about for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're on the edge. They can see it with their eyes. And this is the promised land that God said, I gave to you. He says past tense because it was a done deal. He had given it to them. It was theirs. Go up and take the land. So let's backtrack a little bit. Let's do a little math. So, so God promised Abraham in Genesis 15, which is about 1875 BC, that he was giving Abraham and his descendants, God's people, the promised land. And then when reading through the scriptures, we realize it took 625 years from the time of the promise to entering the promise, which happened in around 1250 BC. But we know that they could have entered in this moment 40 years earlier so 625 minus 40 leads us to 585. For 585 years, the Israelites had heard about the promised land. They knew God had promised them. He knew he was going to give it to them. And they were waiting to enter the promised land. And they were begging to get out of slavery so they could get into the promised land. And now they find themselves at the edge of their promise. Waiting 585 years. So they send out 12 spies to spy out the promised land. Joshua Caleb who were believing and ten unbelieving spies. And remember a spirit of unbelief will never see beyond the difficulties. So they go and spy out the land and they all come back and they all say they all agree that it's amazing. That it's far above anything they could have hoped for. That it's, it's better than the dreams that they had about it. It's better than even how God described. And Joshua and Caleb said we must go up and take the land at once. God has given it to us. But then the 10 unbelieving spies give a, a bad report. Well, it's amazing as everything we hoped for and waited for for 585 years, however, the inhabitants are like giants. We're grasshoppers in their sight. We will be destroyed. We cannot take the land. And because the entire clan of Israel had an unbelieving spirit, they believed the bad report of the 10 spies instead of the good report that where God had shown himself faithful at every turn, at every trial, he showed up for them. But even though he had shown up for them time and time again, they still had unbelief in their heart, and they refused to go in. And so in Numbers 14.11, this is the Lord speaking says, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I performed among them. And so then with grief in his heart, the Lord says this in Numbers 14, 16. Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. The Israelites had forced God's hand. Do you think God wanted to kill his chosen people? No. But they forced his hand because God was going to keep his promise to the Israelites. And if that entire unbelieving generation refused to go in, God was able, they just refused to go. He said, well, now you're cursed to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire unbelieving generation dies out. So the generation that's left will actually believe me at my word and take the promise that I promised to them 625 years ago. Their unbelief destroyed their destiny And the promise they waited for, for 585 years. And I think we all have to go like, why? Like, why did they do that? Like, every time they needed something, God was there. They needed, they didn't have food. God rained down manna from heaven and they had enough to eat for every single day. Every time they didn't have water, God brought water out of a rock. He provided everything they needed. Yet still, they didn't fully trust and fully believe in God's goodness and faithfulness. And so I I can imagine we have to ask ourselves why. And sometimes to understand why we're making the decisions we're making today, we have to actually go back into our past. And when I reflected on the the past and the history of the Israelites, we know that they experienced a seven-year famine so great they lost loved ones, they lost their children, they lost mothers and fathers. And then that led them into 400 years of slavery and bondage that was so cruel and so brutal the long suffering they had to endure, I cannot even imagine watching their loved ones be beaten when they couldn't complete the impossible tasks that Pharaoh put before them. Beaten until death sometimes. This was the generation, the mothers and the fathers and the sons and the daughters that had their baby newborn baby boys ripped out of their arms and thrown into the river by the wicked Pharaoh because Pharaoh feared that the Israelites were growing great in number. Can you imagine waiting nine months for that precious baby and this, you have no control and and you can't do anything about it and they take the baby from you as quickly as you deliver it and it's cast into the river to drown or to be eaten by animals. Horrifying traumas the Israelites went through. And so I think sometimes when we like think back, I wonder along the way if they got confused about who was causing the pain. Was it God or was it the wicked Pharaoh? And they begin to question God's true nature and character. So maybe they didn't fully believe that God was good. Because they're God's children, right? We're God's kids. Why isn't he preventing this? Why isn't he stopping all these wicked things from happening? Why isn't he he intervening in Pharaoh's free will and and making him choose rightly? Why doesn't he intervene in my life when I'm choosing things that are going to lead me down a path of destruction? Why doesn't God prevent these things from happening? But God never promised to be the great preventionist. And so we get to this place. And and we're so confused because free will is an interesting thing. God promises to never violate it. And we want our free will. We want our free will to choose whether we're choosing rightly or wrongly. But yet when it comes to someone else's free will, we want God to override their free will if they're going to choose something wrongly that might hurt or harm us or cause us pain. We cannot have it both ways. He will not violate our free will. So I want to put it to you today that the terrible things that happen in this life Those things are not God's will. It's the result of people's free will that terrible things happen in this life. And there's a really bad teaching out there that tells us that everything that happens is God's will. Uh, Lie from the pit of hell. Everything that happens is not God's will. What is God's will? God's will is, is what we saw Jesus doing. Jesus said, "You know God said, "I sent my son to do my will." Jesus says, "I'm here to the will of my Father." What did Jesus do? He healed all who were sick and oppressed by the devil. He ministered to everyone and cared for everyone. Why do we pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If, if God's will always happen, why do we have to pray that His will would come to earth? I'll put it to you today that God's will rarely happens in the earth because there is wicked and evil people and agenda. God's will is not to do those things. God, everything that happens is not God's will. But there's poor teaching. And that teaching, that destructive, false teaching has taken people out of the house of God. It has ruined their view of a heavenly Father that loves them and cares for them and has good plans for them. It has taken people out of the house of God, the church, and literally out of life. Because if you, if you believe that God isn't good or that God caused those things, how do you trust him? Like, how do you trust him if you believe those things? That God caused that precious baby to die or that accident to happen or that cancer to take that person out. How do we trust him if we believe that everything that happens is God's will? I need to tell you today that God cannot and does not arrange bad things to happen. He works all things together for good, but not everything that happens is good. Only good and perfect gifts come from above, James 1.17 says. Only good and perfect gifts come from above. So it's as easy as this, but difficult to believe. If it's not good, God was not the author of it. Yet I wonder how many times we believed that the author of our trauma and our pain and our heartache and our disappointment was the signature of God. The verdict came in and we accused God as the guilty one. Yet it had the devil's fingerprints all over it. Because the Bible says in John 10.10 that the thief, the devil, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy our lives. But God has come that we might have life and life abundantly. So whose fingerprints were all over that painful circumstance or trauma or accident that happened? Did it steal, kill, and destroy from us? That's the devil's signature. But too many times we assign the authorship of God on the line of the pain and the trauma. And he had nothing to do with it. And when we come into agreement with that lie, the painful things that happen to us, that God somehow authored that signature of that trauma, we come into agreement with the lie that God actually isn't good. And that we can't fully trust him. And that we don't know if he's actually going to back us or not. Is he actually going to do what he said he's going to do? Because we believe the lie, and that lie takes root, and that root grows. So now every other bad thing that happens because you believed a little bit of a lie that God didn't come through, that God's not for you, that God's not good, that he caused these bad things to happen to you. And that root is going to grow. Now every time something tragic or bad happens, your instant reaction, because there's a root, a belief system there, you instantly go to God is not good. God did this and your anger rises against the Lord. Can you see how this intake take people out? Not understanding who was the author of that? Who signed for that? And honestly, I'll be, I will be honest with you. It's not always the devil's signature or God's signature. Sometimes it's our own. Sometimes we sign off on that pain and that trauma and that heartache. The Bible talks about, and it's, it's Proverbs nineteen three. it says, people ruin their life by their own foolishness, and then they're angry with the Lord. Uh-huh. Plain and simple, people, that's what the word says. People ruin their life by their own foolish choices, and then they're angry with the Lord, because they refuse to take responsibility for the decisions that they make, and they wanna blame some of them, and they will not blame themselves. And if you believe the lie that God isn't faithful and you have unbelief in your heart and you believe that he's not good, it can take you out of the destiny that God has destined for you since the beginning of time. It took an entire generation of Israelites out of their promise. It ruined what God had planned for them because of their unbelief and their distrust of his character. And there's another poor teaching out there that I really feel like I need to address because since I've gotten this revelation, I, I'm so heightened to hearing these types of things. When people say, figures. Yeah. Figure what? Figure who? Yeah. Who are you talking to? Yeah. When bad things happen, f- figures. Yeah. Are you blaming the devil? Or do you not even realize you're actually blaming God? Right. Yeah. Who's f- Figures. Who, who, who are you saying did it? Right. All these little things right. that we do. And then you hear things like, well, I believe God gave me this sickness to teach me something. Oh. Wrong. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Again. The, but yeah, I understand. I can understand where sometimes we can get this poor teaching. We're taught it. We learn it. We believe it. We think it. Whatever. Yet the Bible does say the Lord disciplines those he loves. And the word discipline is to train, to teach, and even to spank. You know how many people I want to spank? That's the discipline. And it's out of an act of love to spare them from going down a path of destruction. So, so when the Lord disciplines you, his discipline cannot override his will or his character. So God doesn't discipline you by giving you cancer, because that would—that that is not in his will. That is not in his nature. He comes to heal sickness, not give it to you. So God doesn't discipline you through trauma and horrible pains and sickness and disease and losing children. God isn't teaching you a lesson. Oh, sure, you can learn something from it. You can learn how to lean into him to be comforted, to gain that peace that surpasses all. You can learn a lot, but he isn't teaching you a lesson intentionally and causing those things to happen. God doesn't discipline in that destructive way. And the the teaching around that God gives people sickness, how do you, if you think God gave it to you and you think it was God's will that you're sick and have cancer and are on your deathbed, how do you actually pray for healing or even believe for it? Because if you prayed for it or believed for it, you'd be, Believing and praying against his will. Because it was his will to give it to you, right? It doesn't make any sense. But you can see how the enemy has twisted this teaching and twisted these things. And to become a lie that we believed and somehow God is this mean, angry God that inflicts his people. No. Whose signature is on that? The Lord says, and he reminds us of this because I think it can be easy to forget the nature and character of God when we're going through pain and trauma. So in Psalm 103, 1 through 3, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his nature and character. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. But I can understand why sometimes we can forget, especially when we're going through situations where we're really vulnerable and hurting, and the reason why I wanted to share this message is because, because, God, I've had to walk through this journey over the last five, six months. And the Lord spoke to me about five months ago about the first time you come back, you're going to be preaching this. But I actually had to wait till I felt I had the strength to do it. So that's why I haven't preached in six months. So I want to share my story with you. And, and I know Pastor John preached so brilliantly last week. Please, if you are not here, please get that message. It's a word for our church for this next season we are going into. And so he had shared how, and many of you know, that I lost my brother in a tragic accident on July 5th of this year in Cabo San Lucas. My brother had lived in Cabo for many, many years. He had packed up all of his belongings, though, and he was planning to drive back and come back to the States to be closer to family, finally. And, uh, and so he had packed everything up, but he was kind of waiting for us to arrive. And we arrived to Cabo San Lucas on Sunday, and my brother was hit by the car on Monday. He was crossing the street, and a car struck him. And that began a seven-day battle for his life. But on the eighth day... God received him into heaven. And what I even love about the fact that he passed away on the eighth day was the number of the meaning of eight in the Bible. Number eight in the Bible represents a new beginning, meaning or a new order or creation, a man's true born-again event when he is resurrected from the dead into eternal life. And because we know what happened to my brother wasn't good, we knew immediately it wasn't from God. So we didn't, we didn't blame God. And we actually were able to witness the scripture where God says, even though it wasn't good, God can work all things together for good according to his purposes. And so thinking about what actually took place, I want to share with you the goodness, the graciousness, and the mercy of God in this whole situation. We weren't supposed to be in Cabo. We were actually supposed to be in Barbados with a group of friends. And there was a volcano in Barbados. So at the last minute, they canceled all travel plans. And then we looked at Hawaii. And then we looked at Turks and Caicos. And then we looked at Cancun. We looked at all these places. But nowhere had the actual week that we were all available to go to run a house of the size that we actually needed for our group. And so as a last resort, and I mean last resort, we all settled on Cabo because we found a home, the only home we could find that had the travel dates that we were all available. So we all end up in Cabo. We arrive on the the Sunday where I was able to talk and connect with my brother. He'd been going through a horrible season. When I say season, I mean a decade. He was a pastor. He was wounded. He turned our town upside down and Terrible things happened, and and I realize now, even thinking about this message, my brother was taken out of the house of God and had so much anger and bitterness towards God because when those tragedies happened, he allowed the signature of God to be put down on that line when God had nothing to do with it. So he'd lived 10 years just in anger and bitterness and really turmoil. So we were able to just talk to him and minister to him. He was in a really dark place. And then where my brother ended up being struck by the car, the hospital they took him to was three minutes from the only house that was available to us in that time frame. We were able to get to the hospital within minutes of my brother being struck by that car, and we were able to actually talk to him while he was still conscious and reassure him that we were there. And the most crazy thing, I didn't realize, well, first of all, I didn't want to be in Cabo. I wanted to be in Barbados. But now I'm realizing that God works all things together for good, and he allowed us to be there. And the the scary thing about it all was that no one in my family had passports. Not one person in my family could have gotten to him in time. And if I was in Barbados with all the COVID drama, there would have been no way we could have gotten to to him in time. And the fact that he had beautiful friends there in Kabul, but not one single believing friend. And over the course of the next seven days, it was the most tragic, heart-wrenching, stressful situation, making decisions of life or death every day. But yet on the other side of it, it was the most peaceful, beautiful experience. Because my, we were able to reconcile my brother with the Lord. He reconciled with God. Yes. And for seven days, because he was now in a state of unconsciousness, he had no choice but to let me read the Bible to him every day. And he had to listen. He had to listen. He couldn't do anything about it. And so over the last seven days of his life, ten, 10 years of trauma, the last seven days were full of peace in God's word and we would sing over him and worship music was praying. We were declaring God's love and we were able to call every single one of my family members and put that phone up to his ear and they all got to tell him how much they loved him. And it was so beautiful because while he was unconscious, when my family was talking to him one by one, tears would start to stream out of his gut, his eye that was not damaged. So he heard every single word. And on that last night, the seventh night, we were praying once again, fighting the good fight of faith, praying the prayer of faith, praying the prayer of faith that will save the sick. John shared about this last week, but we're both praying over him. It's really late into the evening at this point. And John, because he uh, had been, has been miraculously healed himself, he really operates in healing. He has such a great faith to see healings happen, miraculous things happen, and they happen all the time. So Pastor John understands what the healing power of God feels like. And so while we were praying on that seventh night, he felt this mighty wind and power of God come through his back, down his arm, And it usually then gets released out of his hand when he puts his hand on someone. But as we're praying, he said, as he felt the power of God go down his arm, it stopped at his wrist. And he's like, what is happening? Like, it's here. Like, why is it not, like, leave, like, why is it not going into Stephen? And I think Pastor John realized in that moment that it was our will and God's will to heal my brother. Yeah. But my brother, I can only imagine over the course of the seven days, had a lot of conversations with the Lord. Right. And in his heart, his will yeah. was to go and be with the Lord. And so we left the hospital that night. John didn't share with me what had happened. He didn't up sharing with me until the next morning on that eighth morning when we found out my brother had passed. And I, and, and again, he's like, I didn't want to say anything in the moment because I didn't want to speak any unbelief or lack of faith. We're going to fight till the very end. And what I was able to share with him was in the same moment he was praying, I felt for the first time a resistance. And I, I I was almost like I, I, whether it was a vision or just in my mind, it's like I felt and I saw like Stephen's soul go. And I, and I had such a peace knowing he was with the Lord. But again, I didn't want to say it in that moment because I didn't want to speak lack of faith or unbelief. And while we were at the hospital, praying into the late, early hours of the next morning, our friends that we went to travel with, one of the couples were the Cranes. And Katrina Crane, when I came home that next morning and shared that my brother had died, she said, Becky, when you guys were at the hospital, I was asleep. And God gave me this vision of your brother like, entering into heaven and running full speed and throwing his arms around the neck of Jesus and there was such joy in his face and she described the joy and I'm thinking he probably hasn't felt that joy in a decade and she said but I I woke up and I rebuked the dream Because Stephen will not die. He will live. He started rebuking it. And it's like, Stephen will live. He will not die. And then she went back to sleep. The same dream happened again. And she woke up and she rebuked the dream again. She said three times. She had the, and she rebuked it. And then she finally realized the Lord was telling her to remind us that Stephen was in the loving arms of his heavenly father and that he was okay. And I know that, again, we knew what happened wasn't God, because it wasn't good. And we, But we had already seen all the good come out of it. We were able to have a memorial for all of his unbelieving friends in Cabo. We shared that Stephen was actually a believer. And they all were talking about how good he was and how wonderful and how generous. He helped everybody move. He would bought every single mom furniture. He took, helped take care of their kids and their dogs. And he had a beautiful soul, yet tormented in so many ways. But he kept his torment under radar because he was ashamed. He never told anyone about his struggles. And he never told anyone about his faith because he knew he wasn't living it out so we were able actually after everyone shared all these good things about my brother to help them understand the good in him was god and the same person that always put all your needs above his own every time was because of god and that stephen wanted to see them one day in heaven again and we extended the invitation people to respond to jesus and invite them invite him into their lives It was beautiful so so much good came out of it but why I really felt I needed to share this message was because me pastor Becky knowing all the things about the goodness of God the faithfulness I see it every day all day I see the miracles I see the restoration I see the healing I see it all and I know God is good but in moment of like there were moments in the grieving process that were so deep and so painful and I remember this one night so clearly we were in John's car and I just started like going out loud like why like why God like why and my why started with to seeking understanding but then my why quickly turned to anger and accusation towards the Lord and I began this downward spiral And I began to scream, and I was punching John's car, and I was kicking at his floorboards, and I was blaming God. So my why to seek understanding was, why God? It turned to, why did you let this happen? You could have stopped him from crossing the street. You could you're supernatural. You could have stopped the car dead in its tracks. You could have stopped it, but you didn't. And I was so angry. And now John, I'm like throwing punches, and he's like worried about me, but now he's worried about his car. And and like, oh my gosh, you're going to break the window. Like, what do I do? (laughs) And in my most distraught, painful moment, it was like the Holy Spirit arrested me. And I I just, I put my hands over my face and I said, oh my God. Oh my God, John, this is how it happens. Like, this is how it happens. This is how people get taken out. Like we're in so much pain and we're crying so many tears that we can't see clearly through the tears. And then we have a distorted, unclear view of who God is. We start to blame it and accuse him and it takes us out. And we attribute things to the signature of God when he had nothing to do with it because we just want the pain to end and we want someone to blame. And it was like, no. You cannot, you cannot, you know who God is. You know his nature. This was not God's doing. This was not his signature. And I had to stop myself. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, Becky, it is okay. It's okay to process. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry and even ask the question why. But at the end of your process, if you don't conclude that I am good, that I am faithful, and that I am loving, then you have to go back and reprocess with the Lord. And I just know that this is how the devil works. We start out with good intentions, understanding the goodness, the faithfulness, and the love of God, and then tragedy strikes. In our most vulnerable moments, the enemy takes advantage of the knowledge you once had, and it's overcome with the emotion we're feeling. And we attribute those things to an evil God that lets bad things happen to good people. It is not the signature of God, my friends. He is not the author of the painful things that have happened to you. He's a good God, a loving God, and he adores you. He has plans for you more than all that you could ever hope for or imagine. He's wonderful. He's our counselor. He's the great I am, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, all powerful, all loving, full of grace and mercy and loving kindness. Those are the names of Jesus in the contract but he signs his name to. So my hope and my prayer for today was that as we end 2021, that you have a revelation that maybe somewhere along the way, you sign God's name to things. Yet it was the devil's handiwork and distorted your view of God. It's prevented you from, from believing all the things God wants you to believe for and ask for and receive. It's not that God's withholding the promise, but it's our belief system that prevents us from walking into our promise. And I know God wants to speak to you so powerfully next week on Vision Sunday. And it's not that God isn't able or willing or wanting to do those things that he's gonna speak to you about next week. He's totally able but we have to reconcile in our hearts the true nature of God so that we can believe He actually will do those things and walk into those promises. So today my prayer was that we would all just, before we walk up and we shred the bills and the medical reports, the negative mindsets and any other thing you wanna leave behind, that we would spend some time asking God to search our hearts to see if there's any wicked way or belief system in us. And then if we've realized we've signed the name of God to things that he did not author, we would have the courage to repent of those belief systems and ask God to forgive us for believing the lie and ask him to renew our minds, to give us a fresh understanding and a revelation about his glorious goodness in our lives. Amen, amen. And before we shred, I, I, want, I, have to, I want to pray. I want to give people an opportunity to respond to Jesus. So if you can just close your eyes and bow your heads. The last Sunday of 2021, I know there are people in here today that have never surrendered their lives to a loving God. And there are people in here today that once surrendered their life to God and invited God into their lives but you've taken your life back and things got really messy. Maybe you're angry with him. He wants to restore you today. And he wants you to come into a right relationship with him. So if you are in here today, don't go into 2022, not knowing Jesus, your savior who can make all things new. So if you're in here today and you're one of those two people, you need to surrender your life to Jesus or you need to re-surrender your life to Jesus while no one else is looking around. Can you just lift your hand nice and high so that I can include you in my prayer so I know who I'm praying for. Yes, I see you in the hat right there. Yes, I see both your hands right there. And yes, I see you holding on to the book there. I see you in the two hands up the back over here. I see you as well. Who else are we waiting on? Who else are we waiting on? Yes, I see your hand there towards the center. Praise God. Praise God. Yes, I see your hand over here, sir, in the blue. Praise God. And I see your hand over there. Gorgeous, beautiful hair, by the way. Who else am I waiting on? Yes, I see you. I see you. Thank you, Jesus, for the miracle of salvation. All right, we're all gonna pray this prayer together, especially those of you who lifted your hands. We're gonna pray this prayer and it's a simple prayer but powerful. And today you can know that you have surrendered your life to Jesus, that he has plans and a purpose for you, that heaven is your final destination. And you'll be able to meet my beautiful brother Stephen one day. So we're all gonna pray this prayer together and everyone's gonna repeat it with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I thank you today that I am saved, that I am forgiven, and that heaven is my final destination. God, help me walk with you, follow you, restore my heart, Restore my revelation of who you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.